Today's reading comes from Mark 14, 1 through 9. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word and this uh, short and yet powerful account of Jesus shortly before he gave up his own life as he sat around the table with this group. God, thank you for this woman and her act of faith, her act of love and of cherishing her Savior. God, may it challenge us like it challenged those who heard her the first time uh, when it happened. God, we pray for hearts that are receptive to your word, hearts that are willing and um, willing to be challenged and willing to be changed. God, we know only your Holy Spirit can transform us. And so we pray, which is all that we can do, we can pray for you to transform us. And we ask that you would be at work, even now, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Culturally, we live in a time where it is um, normal for somebody to go all out for some kind of special occasion, whether it be a party uh, or some kind of um, shower or gender reveal. Uh, you know, your social media is probably just about every week got some account of somebody throwing a, a massive version of one of those parties. And perhaps none of those uh, gets as big as a proposal these days. There are now companies, this may be good information for somebody that's considering popping the question soon if you need some help. Uh, there are now companies that specialize in helping uh, throw elaborate proposals for somebody to, to you know, propose marriage to a, a, a girlfriend. Uh, they have done uh, some pretty amazing things like flying a couple in a helicopter to a remote scuba diving place so they can be dropped into the water by helicopter, and then the proposal can happen in that remote place. Uh, one group I read about uh, paired them, they paired them with a uh, Mongolian tribe of nomads who had a highly trained eagle. And this eagle was able to fly away to a distant place, pick up the engagement ring, and bring it back to the couple so they could propose, he could propose there. One group uh, hired a, a group of glacier explorers in Iceland 
who a part of their tour went through this really beautiful uh, tunnel underneath and in, in through the ice. And the, the, the crew had hidden the ring somehow in the ice for the couple to come upon and dig out and propose there. And of course, there's lots of big, all the expected ones, Eiffel Towers and Grand Canyons and beautiful beaches, all those, all the, all the normal cliche, beautiful things. You can hire these companies for that. The, these companies are able to charge tens of thousands of dollars on top of the expense of actually doing it, just the planning for this. They can charge a very high amount. And I fully support letting your bride-to-be know how special she is. But at some point, we have to ask, is that too much, you know? Like, did you just one, one or ten steps too far, and you went just a little, a little too much? When it comes to expressing love, whether it's somebody you want to marry, somebody you've been married to for decades, to your children, to your parents, grandkids, best friends, whatever, there, there is a place for doing more than words, right? Showing, showing affection with more than just I love you. An act of love can go a long way. And yet, there has to reach a point when it's too far, right? Too much. Too much. In our passage today, everybody around a woman giving a gift to Jesus said, too much. What you just did was too much. There was a line somewhere shy of where you went, and you crossed it. And this is just over-the-top ridiculous. This is too much. When it comes to loving Jesus, isn't there a point of, of wasteful extravagance? At some point, it's too far. At some point, it's too much, right? Well, Jesus certainly didn't think so. Everybody else rebuked this woman, and yet Jesus defended her. They said too much, and he said it was just right. In fact, it was beautiful, is the word he uses. We started going through this last section of Mark's gospel just a couple weeks ago, but today is the first Sunday in what the church has called the Lent season. Just like Advent prepares us for Christmas, Lent is the 40 days plus six Sundays that leads up to Easter. We're only seven weeks away. Six and a half or six, six Sundays from now is Easter. And so this is appropriate that we're in Mark's gospel, the last couple chapters that cover, cover the last few days of his life before and when he is crucified, buried, and then Easter Sunday resurrected. It's a good place for us to be as we prepare our hearts for Easter and as we consider what Jesus' life was like in those last couple days. The account we have before us in, in the beginning of Mark 14 gives us a few different people as they react to Jesus. And their reaction seems to be based on how they see Him, who they see Jesus to be. How you will respond to Jesus depends on what you believe about Him. What you believe about Him will dictate how you respond to Him. And especially what you think He's worth, the value of Christ, His significance, who He is, and His how important he is. Jesus determined, as we, however we see Him, will determine how we respond to Him. And we have to answer, how valuable is Jesus to us? What do you value? What do you treasure? What's of utmost significance and importance to you? We all have things we value. And we treat them very well. Whether it's ourselves or somebody else, we value and we treasure certain things. How much do you treasure Jesus? The first group that Mark tells us about at the beginning of this chapter 
is a group of religious leaders. There's been an ongoing conflict kind of building through the Gospel of Mark, and so we get an update on that conflict in chapter 14, 1 and 2. It says, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So this is our first group for today to figure out what are kind of our options on how we think we should respond to Jesus. The first group teaches us this about some of us. Some are intolerant of Jesus. Some completely reject. Some are intolerant of Jesus. They completely want to get rid of Him. They despise and reject Him completely. These religious rulers had a system where they thought things were a certain way. Right? They were, they were, they, they were intolerant of Jesus because He was going to mess up their system. They had, uh, with the Roman rulers who were occupying the land, the Romans had, decide, had allowed the Jews, they could continue to practice their religion within a certain parameters. They had to keep the peace. They had to pay their taxes. They had to do certain things. But as long as they held up their end, the Romans would allow the Jewish people to continue to practice their religion. And so for the Jewish leaders who were in, had some level of, of wealth and, and, and power and influence, anybody that came along that might disrupt that organization, they were against. The Jewish rulers, these chief priests and scribes, they saw Jesus as a threat to their current system and the status quo. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, His miracles, these followers that were building. It was just all too much for them, and He was rocking the boat. And so they were rejecting Him. They were intolerant of Him. Which, of course, is terribly ironic, because the thing that they were preaching... Their own religion, what they were proclaiming everywhere they went was, we're waiting on the Messiah. They were waiting for Jesus. And yet when Jesus came, they were rejecting Him. They were intolerant of Him. They did, he didn't fit their expectations. He was shaking things up too much. They did not want a Messiah like this, and so they were intolerant of Jesus. The only roadblock to their plan was that there were just too many people around. It's a festival. It's, a, it's Passover. One of the biggest, thousands and thousands of people coming to Jerusalem. Earlier, they had, been, they had greeted Jesus just a few days before. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People were flocking to this guy. If they just take him out and kill him out in the open, it's going to shake things up even more. So they needed some way to get around that. They were intolerant of Jesus because he messed up their worldview and the way things, their way of doing life. And that still happens today. It still happens today that some people, when they come in contact with Jesus completely reject him, completely intolerant of him for who he is. When people get, begin to see Jesus, they can recognize that their life doesn't match up with his. What he says doesn't match theirs. And so to, to follow Jesus would be a dramatic shift. And some people say, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And they completely reject him. He doesn't match their way of, the, way of seeing the world, their worldview. Maybe they, they practice a different religion or they're primarily focused on a, a social issue or a political issue or their life is mainly focused around a wealth or career or comfort or some definition of success. And to begin to follow Jesus would be to change all those things. And the, so they say, no, I don't want him. He doesn't match my way of thinking, so I don't want him. Just as the religious leaders were ironically rejecting the very Messiah they're waiting on, anybody who rejects Jesus is actually rejecting the only one who can meet all the needs our heart really has. Amen. 
All of us have some definition that we think our true joy, our true happiness, our true satisfaction, our true pleasure, our true life that has purpose and meaning is coming from somewhere. And everybody that rejects Jesus says it comes from coming from somewhere else. And the terrible irony for people who reject Jesus is that they're missing it out. The very one who could give them all the things we've been, we want deeply. Not just the material blessings, goodness no. Much better than that. The deep satisfaction of our souls. The Messiah, the Savior. He's the one we need. And so many people reject Him while searching for the very things that He could offer. Some people are intolerant of Jesus because He costs too much. He doesn't match our expectations. Maybe He's just associated with the wrong crowd. They don't want to be associated with that. So they reject Him. But that group isn't the biggest concern I see for us. You know why? You came to church today. Willingly, I think, most of you. Not, nobody forced you here. And so you're probably not in that first crowd. You might have been at one point, and perhaps you know people and continue to, to love on people who are actively rejecting Jesus. That's, that's common. That's important for us to keep in mind. But probably most of us are facing a different temptation that a second group of people raises. A second group of people we meet are a group of people sitting around reclining at table with Jesus. That's how they would eat, reclining around a table. So if they're eating with Jesus, these are probably disciples, other followers of His, and they, they must be for Jesus because they're hanging out with Him. They're spending time with Him. And we see their reaction to a woman who comes and anoints Jesus, and we begin to understand what they really think about Jesus. We'll read the woman's actions first in verse 3. It says, And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And this, this is their response, verse 4 and 5. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. This group was not like the religious rulers back in Jerusalem who were completely rejecting Jesus. No, they were sitting around the table with him. They apparently enjoyed him. They were following him. They were okay with Jesus. They even liked him. But in their eyes, this woman's action was too far. It was too much. This group represents how others might respond to Jesus, and that's this. Some are intolerant of Jesus, but some tolerate Jesus in moderation. Some completely reject Him, but others are okay with Him just so long as it's you know, a manageable amount, a moderate amount of Jesus, something we can kind of keep you know, under control. Not, not too much. Let's don't go overboard with this whole religion thing. I mean, come on now. There's other things we need to do in life. Just, just keep it contained. Some tolerate Jesus in moderation. This group wasn't against Jesus. They were for Him. They were hanging out with Him. They were spending time with Him. But they thought this step was too far. Faster than a pawnbroker, they identify the value of that ointment. That, they say, that's worth a whole year's worth of wages. 300 denarii. It would take any of us working a year, they say, to, to get the, that, that ointment that she's got, that precious perfume, 
We would have to work an entire year, save every penny of it to buy that ointment. And she just walks in here, pours it all out on Jesus. That is too much, they say. We can love him, but come on now. Are you, are you training an eagle to go get a ring or something here? I mean, like, this is too much. What does it look like to love Jesus too much? To spend too much time with him? To give too much of your money to him? To spend too much time devoted to just one book? I mean, aren't there other books out there? You're spending all your time in one book? These followers of Jesus, they think it's, it's a waste. It could have been used better places. Surely your time and energy and efforts could be put other places better, more functional than Jesus. Surely our best and brightest shouldn't waste their time becoming missionaries. What a waste. Why don't you contribute to the world? Why don't you do something of value? It's a waste, many think. Many of us wouldn't think twice about a lavish gesture for a proposal, 50th wedding anniversary, last vacation with the kids before they go off to college, those can be great things. It's good to be lavish in our love for others. But many of us, I'm convinced, I know I would, would struggle if we were sitting around that table that day. Take your salary for a year, put all that in one thing of ointment, and watch it all get poured out in one instance on Jesus. Does it make you squirm a little bit? Makes me squirm. A whole year poured out on Jesus. The world rarely says that somebody has too much money or too much fame or too much power or too much romance. But the world is very quick to say you got too much religion. You can have too much of all those things, but you can't. No, don't, don't get too much Jesus. That, that'll get you in trouble. That's what the people around Jesus thought that night. They were indignant, and so they scolded her. They chastened her. They rebuked her. They were mad at her, and they let her know it. She had crossed a line, and they weren't going to let her go without hearing about it. Culturally, at the time, men ate with men, women with women. So she crossed a line by just coming in the room. She had been allowed to come and bring food, but she can't do this. This is, this is too much. And then to waste all of that, they aren't happy about it. And yet Jesus radically disagrees. He completely disagrees with their perception of her action. The third group, or in this case a person, we got to consider. We've got the religious people who reject him. We've got the disciples, the followers who are okay with Jesus in moderation. We've got to consider this woman and how she saw Jesus. What did she really believe about Jesus for her to do this? Jesus' words help us understand the right response. Verse 6 and 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why have you troubled her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Here's what Jesus teaches us as this woman worships her beloved Savior. Nothing is more worthy of lavish worship than Jesus. There is nothing, there will be nothing, there has never been anything more worthy of lavish, extravagant, over-the-top worship than your Savior, Jesus. 
Do you hear how Jesus comes to the defense of this woman? I mean, any of us, surrounded by other men, friends of ours, and everybody, everybody else is criticizing her, it would have been very easy for us just to kind of, oh, guys, you know, just chill out, whatever, and then privately go to her and say, hey, actually, that was pretty neat. Thank you for that. You know? Not Jesus. I picture him standing up and saying, uh-uh, guys, you missed it. You've missed it. He comes to her defense and says, y'all have all missed it. What she did was beautiful, not a waste. It is a beautiful thing she has done. It's quite a compliment. Mark is almost tripping over his words when he goes to describe this, this, this alabaster jar, right? We, we get a description that it's ointment, not just any ointment, though it's nard. Which is, and then he says, it's not just any nard, it's pure nard. An ointment of pure nard. Any one of those three words would have probably been fine, right? But he gives us all three. And then he says, it wasn't just in any container. It was in an alabaster flask, a, a very beautiful um, rock stone type, type flask. And then it wasn't just that. It was a, an alabaster ja- flask of pure nard ointment that was very costly. It's like Mark doesn't want you to, to miss this. You don't have to go read commentaries to figure out. Mark is saying, this was a big deal. Plus, you get the, 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 the dollar amount on it, a year's salary. You can do some reading, though, and, and understand just a little bit more about this. In that day, women didn't, weren't allowed to have very many high-paying jobs. So it was rare that a woman you know, in her own self would have a, a lot of wealth accumulated. And frequently, property was passed down to, to the men in the family, not the women. So something like this, this ointment, this very nice flask of, of, of nard, would have been a way for, for a woman to have something of wealth, of value, something that was hers, and perhaps was something that a family would give to the next generation, to their daughter, to pass along wealth. Rather than having a big bank account and somewhere else, they have this ointment, this year's, like having a gold bar or something. I've got this wealth. I have this ointment. So it was it had been passed along. Perhaps it wasn't just valuable. It was also sentimental. How many generations had this been in the family that she had? And what did she do with it? She came and she broke it and poured it all out on Jesus' head. We don't know if that container was made to only be broken or she just decided, hey, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm using it for, so I'm going to break it. But the point is, it's all poured out. She doesn't just spritz Jesus with a little bit. Hey, this will make you smell good, Jesus. She doesn't save some for herself or anybody else wants some while I got it here. It's all, all of it on Jesus' head. There's a story in Acts 5 where the opposite happens. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They're part of the early church, and, and the, their church is beginning to get some momentum, and they want to be a part of it, and they go and they sell a piece of property that they have. And they come and they give the money to the disciples, but what they say is, here's the amount we sold it for. This is everything. And they even ask, they say, this is everything? This is everything that you, this is how much you got for it? And they say, yeah, it was everything. Separately, man, husband and wife both lie. And both times they say, you didn't lie to us, you lied to God. And both of them die. They said, you, you, it's your money. It was your field. You didn't have to give it. But if you're going to lie to God and say, we're giving you your, our all while holding some back for yourself, there's something wrong with your heart. This woman gives all, everything, all of it poured out. For, one, for this woman in Mark 14, she apparently could see something nobody else could. 
she could see the worth and the value of the one she was giving the gift to. She could see something about Jesus that nobody else in the room, and perhaps very few in the whole city at this point, could see. This was somebody that was unlike anybody else. He is the only one worthy of lavish worship. There has never been and there never will be someone as worthy as him. And so she gave him all. Her her gift matched the one she was giving to. She could see there's no one better. I, I, I have nobody else better in my life and nobody ever has. He is the very best, and so he gives, she gives him her very best. This woman clearly treasured Jesus above everything, and that was radical that day, and it's radical today. Just as shocking as it would have been for them then, it's shocking for us today. If we're honest, most of us limit our worship of Jesus to just a couple songs a week, right? And even then, you know, you got to miss a Sunday here and there for that kind of thing. So maybe four or five songs a month. Because, you know, we play four or five songs, but, you know, a couple of them you're distracted. There's kids and other things going on. So like a couple songs a week, five, six songs a month, you are, you're in. You're worshiping Jesus. So five songs times four minutes. you got 20 minutes that you are like, I'm all in for Jesus for 20 minutes a month or something like that. For one, all of this service is intended for worship. The proclamation of the word is meant for worship. This is expository exaltation, meant to call our hearts to worship God. But not just this hour either. This, your whole lives are meant for worship. Worship is not just something you do when you come in those doors and stop when you leave. This woman has displayed for us an all-in heart. She's worshiping God with everything she has. Maybe it seems a little lavish, a little extravagant, but to Jesus it was just right. I wonder if for many of us, there's at least one area in our lives that if we're honest, it's a little lavish. Of course, we'll never call it that because that seems, you know, we wouldn't call ourselves rich or, you know, whatever. So so to say something is lavish would be to admit some kind of wealth and what else that. But if you had to go through your last year's worth of expenses and show it all to somebody else, there's probably a category in there somewhere where you'd, ha- you'd feel like you got to be defensive a little bit, right? Like, yeah, I know I pay this much for my car, but like, do you know, see, I mean, I need that. I mean, that's, you know, you would defend that thing. Or here's my house payment, but man, I love my house, you know? Or, or maybe for you, it's coffee, or maybe it's uh, travel, or eating out, or soft drinks, or getting your house cleaned, or something else that's perfectly reasonable and explainable to you, but lavish to somebody else, Right? All of us probably have something like that. What would it look like for you to spend lavishly on the Lord? What would it look like for you to be extreme to the point where you'd have to explain a little bit about the way you spend your time and your money to say, yeah, this doesn't make sense to you, world. This only makes sense because Jesus is the greatest. What would it look like to love Jesus lavishly to be lavish in the way that you worship Him. From the way you spend your time, to the way you spend your money, to the way you organize your calendar, what does lavish worship look like for you? What does it mean to pour out your life, to give your all to Jesus? Do you give Him just a little bit, 20 minutes? Or do you give Him all? 
What about this comment about the poor? I mean, surely that was a reasonable suggestion that the disciples made. Surely that, that, that wasn't crazy. I mean, come on. We could have given this money away and done something with it. We could have fed some people. Well, for one, I'm not sure the people around the table were all that really concerned about the poor. My guess is that they probably were a little bit uncomfortable by this, thought it was a little extravagant. And by throwing in the line about the poor, they made themselves sound a little more holy. Right? Like, oh, see, we're not, it's just, it's just the word the poor we're thinking about. We're not thinking about ourselves or ridiculing her. We're thinking about the poor. Maybe. But, as one commentator, G.A. Chadwick, pointed out, it's, it was not common that others should be more thoughtful of the poor than Jesus. Just read the rest of the Gospel of Mark or any of the other three. These very disciples are the ones that wanted to send away the multitudes, and yet Jesus used five loaves and two fish to feed them all and have plenty left over. These very disciples, probably the ones still sitting around the table, did not want the, G- the, the children to come to Him. They rejected. They were trying to push them away. And Jesus said, no, 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 bring the children. These same disciples were the ones who were telling a blind man named Bartimaeus, shh, don't, don't, don't bother Jesus. He didn't have time for you. And yet Jesus called to Bartimaeus and said, come here and healed him. Jesus, we don't have to worry about Jesus being concerned for the poor, for the, the outcast, for the downtrodden. It's not about that. Jesus was, was very cautious and careful and loving to the poor. And we shouldn't hear his comment about the poor always being with us as if that was somehow defeating any progress being made to help those in need. Jesus knew we lived in a broken world and would continue to have problems, including poverty, until he returns. But he proved in his life that real differences can be made in people's lives. So yes, invest in the poor. Yes, invest in caring for and meeting needs of others. That wasn't the point. His message is about comparison. Even good things like caring for the poor don't match the the best thing, which is worshiping Jesus. It's about comparisons. The disciples throw that in, whether it was genuine or not, we don't know. But they threw that in like, oh, don't do this. Do this other good thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 there is nothing. Even good things, there is nothing more worthy of lavish worship than Jesus. Our time, our attention, our finances, our adoration, our love, our affection, our worship, first and foremost, goes to Jesus. Plenty of good things to do in your life. Important things. Care for your family. Care for the poor. Meet the needs of others. Seek justice. Love people well. But don't get confused in doing good things as if that was the same thing as knowing and loving your Savior. You can do all kinds of good things and ignore Jesus altogether. And Jesus wants you to know doing good things doesn't save you. And doing good things isn't the greatest good. The greatest good is knowing and being known by and being loved by Jesus. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, more worthy of lavish worship than Jesus. There is no competition. It's not a, let's wait to the buzzer and see who comes out in the end. No, it's over. Jesus is the best. How much would be too much for you? How much is too much for loving Jesus? What excuses do you make? I, I can't be all in for Jesus because i got to do this. What things do you bring in competition with Him? To say, I, yeah, I would be all in, but I, I got these weekend requirements, and I got this, my job requires me to stay late and travel here and do this, and the kids' sports, and this hobby, and the lake, and I got, I got all these things to shuffle. 
They're all in competition. Jesus is in there somewhere, and he wins more often than not, but i got a lot of things to handle. I frequently think about this, the little circus people that spin the plates, you know, like all these plates spinning. My life feels like that sometimes. Oh, Jesus is the big one in the middle, but i got to spin these too, right? There's no competition, Jesus says. And this woman saw it. There's nobody more worthy of your attention, your time, your worship than Jesus. One of my favorite parts of this story is that this, this woman gets to be a hero, an absolute hero that Jesus applauds and lifts her up and praises her. He honors her for honoring him. And yet as you read the story, you notice some things about her? Her actions don't even get a full verse. They get half, the second half of verse 3. And in Mark, we don't even get her name. Now, John and Matthew both include what we think is probably the same account. And in John's account, we get this is probably Lazarus' sister Mary. So this probably was Mary. But for Mark, as he's just telling the story, he's saying, I, I want you to see something. How, how much of an outsider this woman was, and yet Jesus brings her in. That theme goes all through Mark, where the people who you think are supposed to be on the inside are really on the outside. Who could be more central than the religious leaders? I mean, these guys have been studying the law their whole lives. All of Jerusalem thinks these guys are important. They're in Jerusalem, after all. They're in the middle. They're in the hub. And yet with Jesus, they're on the outside. Okay, yeah, those guys are on the outside, but what about the disciples? I mean, these guys have been following Jesus for years. These are people who, who've seen all the miracles. Surely they're on the inside. I mean, they're sitting around having dinner with him. And yet in this story, they're on the outside. They don't get it. They don't understand. And yet here's a woman who gets no name and half a verse. And Jesus says, she's the hero. She's on the inside. She gets me. And he lifts her up. Why? She gave her all. She gave everything. And Jesus says, that, that is special. Nothing is more worthy of lavish worship than Jesus. Why was Jesus worthy of this? Surely this is too much. Surely a year's wages was just too much. It's uncomfortable. Why is it uncomfortable to us? Why would he be worthy of this? Jesus gives us a little clue. You know the end of the story, but you know what's coming. Jesus tells his people, he says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body for beforehand for burial. Seems like an odd thing to say, anointed me from burial. Nobody was talking about burial or death or anything at that point. It's unlikely this woman really understood what was coming the next couple of days. The crucifixion seemed to have caught everybody off guard. We don't, we don't get a, a story through the crucifixion of like a group of women somewhere going, ah, I saw this coming. We got it. You know, we understood. No, even she was probably thrown off guard. I don't think that she was thinking about burial when she came and anointed him. No, Jesus is helping those around him see the significance of her actions. That symbolically, this was a, an anointing before burial. The practice of the culture of that time, before you buried somebody, deal with the odor. They die, you cover them with ointment, just to help with the odor, then you bury them. Jesus didn't get to have that. He was crucified and it was Sabbath, so they had to hurry and just get him buried before because the sun was going down. That's why women were coming on that first, what became Resurrection Sunday, because they didn't have a chance on Friday to cover them with ointment. So Jesus is making that connection. You say, this is like what she's doing is anointing me for burial. She was, he was again letting people know, I have come, but I have come to die. Jesus was telling the people around him that just as she gave her all to him, 
He was about to show just how much he came to give. She gave her all. Jesus came to give his all. Not just a year's worth of wages. He came to give his life. He says, she has anointed me for burial. I'm about to go and show you what I'm going to pour out for you. She poured out all the ointment. He says, I'm going to the cross to pour out my very blood for you. God the Father, who praises this woman for her action, He did so because He was doing it as well. He was giving not just a family heirloom that had been passed down from generations. He was giving His own Son in love for His people. Jesus gave His all. And those who see that give their all to Him. Jesus was broken for us, poured out. He had been mocked, beaten, stripped, eventually crucified. His blood was shed. His breath was taken. He died and was buried. He could not have given any more. He gave the very last drop, the flask that was broken, so to speak. It's a one-time use. He poured it out. He gave it all. He sacrificed everything. And so this woman's actions are worthy of our praise and our adoration because it matched Jesus. Not in what it accomplished. There's only one sacrifice that accomplishes our salvation. But her actions matched in heart and in significance for worshiping Him. The first part of verse 8 can be a little bit misleading. It says, um, she has done what she could. And we might read that and go, may may sound like Jesus is saying, ah, she couldn't do very much. She, She did what she could. That's not the the heart here. Literally, it says in in the Greek, it says, that which she had, she did. As if to say, what she she had, she gave it. If she'd have had 10 of these, she'd have given 10. If she had had a half as valuable one, she'd have given that. She gave what she had, which sounds a lot like what Jesus told, said of a woman, a, a widow, just a couple chapters earlier, who put in two small copper coins into the offering, and he said of her, she has put in all she had. Jesus commends lavish, extravagant worship. People who have seen Jesus for who He is, the Jesus who laid down their life for us, they respond in in kind, giving their all to Him. One writer, James Edwards, puts together these two women, the widow's might and this unnamed woman who pours out the ointment, and he says this, When one acts in service to the kingdom of God, no gift, not even a mere two pennies, is meaningless. And no gift, not even a year's salary, is wasted. One last compliment that Jesus gives to this woman. Verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's pretty cool that every time we read this story, we are an active fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. Here we are, talking about Jesus, and saying, look at this, what, what this woman has done. An unnamed woman in Mark who gives one amazing act of service, goes down in history, recorded in the eternal word of God. Remember our memory verse? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Here we are, living testimony. This is in the word of God, her life. She got to leave quite a legacy, didn't she? She's going to be remembered far longer than Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or any politician. She gets to leave a legacy. How did she get to leave a legacy? Her legacy was loving Jesus. And loving Jesus leaves a legacy. Jesus calls, to, calls us to give our lives, to give it all, to worship Him. 
And when you love like that, people will remember you. Not because they remember you. Remember, Mark didn't even give her name. But they say, that woman loved Jesus. And I don't know about you, but at the end of my life, that'd be a pretty awesome thing if people said about us, wouldn't it? You can build your career, you can build a church, you can build whatever else. It's going to pass away. But this won't pass away. Loving Jesus. Let that be your legacy. Pour it all out. Give it all to Him. And people will say, that person. I don't remember their name. <laughs> but they loved Jesus. Loving Jesus lives a legacy because nothing is worthy like Jesus is worthy of our lavish worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible story of a woman who gave all. Father, I admit I'm convicted by it. It'd be a lot easier just to give some or most or to give something less valuable. But this woman gave it all. And so, God, we stand before your word humbled, admitting our sin, admitting our hesitancy, and admitting that if we're hesitant, it must mean we don't really treasure you above all else. So, God, I pray for a conviction and for a clear step forward for each of us that we would follow you in faith with eyes to believe that you are greater. You're greater than our sin. You're greater than our shame. You're greater than our guilt. You're greater than any possession or treasure or relationship that we have. You are above all else. And so, Father, we pray that as we respond to you now in song and leave this place today, we will respond in faith. 